A reading from the book of John. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people settling cattle, sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. When our first son was born nearly 23 years ago, his birth didn't happen without first experiencing a false alarm and more than a little bit of chaos. When we arrived at Hogue Hospital on that warm August 13th afternoon, we'd already been there once earlier that day, and we'd been sent home because it just simply was not yet time, they told us. And when we returned, the hospital, they got us set up in a room, but there was a sense um, from the staff that once again, we were probably, uh, we were probably more eager uh, than the baby for this birth to actually happen. And so the nurses, after we got there, they didn't really pay uh, too much attention to us for a while. Our good friend, Lori, came with us this time. And as we tried to pass the time in the room, it was becoming clear that Suzanne was becoming increasingly uncomfortable. I kept pushing the button for the nurse station, trying to convey to them that things seemed like they were heating up a little bit. I told them that Suzanne's contractions were coming fast and furious and she was having a hard time not pushing. And their response was a casual, okay, okay, we'll be down in a minute to check. When one of the nurses finally strolled in a little while later, she took, she took a look at Suzanne and she quickly realized that Suzanne was nearly fully dilated. Suddenly, the panic that had been on our faces now suddenly transferred to hers. While the nurse, the nurse called Suzanne's obstetrician uh, to let her know that Suzanne was ready to go, but because that they had told that doctor something completely different just a little while earlier, she was now in surgery with another patient and would be delayed for a little bit. So the nurse put us to work. She started pointing at equipment and told Laurie and me to start setting up the room for birth, something that we knew absolutely nothing about. Nevertheless, we did as we were told and we started setting up the room while the nurse went to look for another doctor that would be available for the delivery. 
We set up lights, we moved tables, we set up stirrups where we thought they should go. Uh, we adjusted um, the bed, we moved uh, their furniture out of the way soon. A doctor from across the hall who had just finished another delivery came in, put on new gloves and a gown and sat in the chair in front of Suzanne. That room was in chaos. And I'm sure it didn't help at all that I was focused on trying to get Suzanne to work on her breathing techniques that we had learned earlier in birthing class. Just then, our own doctor, who had just finished surgery and had ran across the street, came in, changed her gown and gloves, and took over, took command. But before she got busy on delivering, she looked around the room and she stood up and she raised her hands and told us all to stop. Stop what we were doing. And she asked with sincere bewilderment, be be bewilderment, what the heck happened here? Who set up the room like this? And Lori and I kept quiet. The doctor stood up, put the lights where they were supposed to go, adjusted the stirrups, put the blankets and towels where they belonged, moved tables back, and then, still shaking her head, sat down to deliver our son, Micah. We named him Micah after the prophet. No pressure, particularly the verses in Micah chapter six, where the prophet says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sin of my soul? He has told you, immortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In our gospel passage today, Jesus and the disciples arrive in Jerusalem just before the most holy celebration of the year, Passover, in the holiest city of the Jewish faith, at the holiest part of the city in the temple. But when he sees up close what is actually happening there in the temple, the buying and the selling of animals as a mandatory and costly sacrifice for the sacred celebration of Passover, Jesus becomes enraged. Who set up the tradition like this, he must have wondered. Have we completely forgotten the words of Micah and all the other prophets, or are we simply ignoring them? Have we lost our way in terms of what is essential about our faith and what God requires of us? And with zeal and fervor, Jesus drives out the animals, the people uh, selling them, the money changers, and probably anybody else that got in his way. Now, scholars have different opinions about what Jesus was so upset about, why he was so angry on this day. Some see Jesus' actions as an indictment of the, the high taxes and the tithes that people were being forced to pay in order to participate in their own faith. And what this did is that this prevented a lot of poor people, a lot of marginalized people from having equal access to the divine and forced them uh, into more an endless debt if they even wanted to have some kind of relationship with God. 
Other scholars think that Jesus is criticizing here this distinction that's often that he is uh, often sees uh, in his day. This distinction between Sabbath and non-Sabbath days when it comes to fit living our faith, a separation of the sacred temple life and the secular home life. We see many modern versions of this today where people act a certain way at church on Sunday, but as soon as they have left the campus, that all changes for the other six days of the week. I think both these things are happening in this passage, but I also think that Jesus is trying to remove non-essential elements of our faith, our thinking, our religious practices that actually prevent us from having the kind of relationship with God that God desires. God is not interested in our doves or our calves or our rams. God does not want our best oil or promises to offer up our firstborn. What God desires from what I can tell from the prophets and from Jesus himself is that God wants us to be godlike in the world, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly, to feed the hungry, to bring healing to the sick, to be the Samaritan neighbor to the others, to the other, to be in solidarity with and empower the poor, the marginalized, and the forgotten, not just on Sundays, not just at church, but all the time, every day, wherever we are. Now, this seems like a timely passage to me, this gospel passage today from John. We've been hearing and experiencing a lot of good news lately in regards to the coronavirus, the lowering of its infection rate, more and more people getting vaccines, and the possibility of life finally beginning to return to some sense of normality. But with all the pain, all the grief that has come with this virus, we have also experienced newness and blessing as we have been forced to find new ways to gather, new ways to worship together, new ways to learn together, to pray together, and to serve together. And in the process, I think we have discovered or we are discovering those things that are most essential, most important to our faith, to our discipleship, to our relationship with God and one another. The virus has acted in a way like Jesus of Nazareth with his whip of cords forcing us off our holy campuses to reflect on what is most important about life and faith. I've been having many conversations with staff and colleagues lately and others about these questions. As we come out of the pandemic and start rushing back to normal, what are the non-essential things of our faith life together before the pandemic that we actually want to let go, have stay in the past, and equally, what are those essential things that we have been forced to discover during the pandemic that we don't want to give up? I'm not going to try to answer those questions here. We certainly can discuss them in our conversation at the end of the service, but more than anything, I want us to begin thinking about these questions and really reflecting on and naming those things that are essential and important to us and to God.
Amen.